Suitcase is a website, quarterly print magazine, and now podcast that celebrates the culture of travel. Hey everyone, so before we get stuck into episode three, we just wanted to add a quick disclaimer. As you all probably know, things are pre-recorded. We've recorded this episode before Boris announced Air Bridges. Don't worry, we'll delve more into that in our next episode. But for now, please do not travel anywhere until the FCO deem it safe to do so and respect government guidelines at all times. Hello, you're listening to The Upgrade, a brand new travel podcast brought to you by Suitcase Magazine. I'm Fleur Rollette Manis. And I'm India Dali. And we're here to help you travel smarter. Coming up on today's episode... It was kind of stressful, but also very adrenaline-fueled and necessary that I did what I had to do to get there because it could have been a matter of life or death. Hey, India, how are you? Hi, Fleur. I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Quite frankly, I'm really sick of being stuck indoors. I don't want to say it prematurely or jinx it, but... There looks to be hope on the horizon that I'll get to explore the wider world really soon. Yeah, Fleur, please don't jinx it. But yeah, no, I totally agree. The travel industry is showing signs of bouncing back. My inbox has certainly been filling up with plenty of hotel and destination news. Yeah, mine too, actually. I think we've just been cooped up for so long now that I've decided I don't really want to reconnect with anyone except my friends and family. And I realise how much I enjoy walking which I never thought I'd say I'd be a walker. I've been known to throw myself down muddy hills as a child to cut Sunday strolls short. But now what I'm doing is like yearning to be in the countryside and putting on some hiking boots. I know, I know. I think we're really going to see a rise in people wanting to go off grid. By that, I don't just mean places where you get no phone signal or like the Wi-Fi is a bit patchy. I mean like really going to the wilderness, like big, vast open spaces, as you say, and incredible landscapes those proper sort of back to nature escapes, you know, that are really different from your standard beach or city break. I think we're going to see a big rise in popularity of these. Um, and I think it's going to be reflected in the travel industry. Yeah, summer houses in Sweden and cabins in the wood kind of vibe. Basically places where you're going to have no one around, where you feel right at home with nature and can just explore all these incredible landscapes that will be right outside your door. Yeah, especially as people won't be rushing back to claustrophobic cities for weekend breaks anytime soon. Right. Cities are scary places to be for some people right now. So I think people will be looking at places that haven't been as hard hit by the pandemic. Take the Azores, for example. It's the first destination to be announced COVID free and it's being dubbed the safest destination in Europe. They've got no active cases of COVID-19 at the time of recording. And from the 1st of July, they're preparing to welcome international visitors. Throughout the pandemic, their infection rates have been really low. And I think that, coupled with the fact that the islands are absolutely beautiful, is really attractive to people. Yeah, the Azores are a great shout, actually, Fleur. I feel like it's still one of those destinations that is relatively under the radar as a holiday spot for, you know, especially for UK travellers. But they're brilliant for an off-good adventure, all rugged landscapes, ethereal black sand beaches. And it's also an incredible hiking destination. I've also heard, you're going to laugh at me for this one, um, that they have a number of brilliant vineyards on Pico Island, which I have on good authority that are fantastic. Shock you're bringing up booze. Um, <laughs> but no, the cluster of nine islands, I think it's nine. Yeah, it is nine. You've got nine islands to explore, each with a different energy, different landscapes, so you can afford to linger a little longer. 
instead of just exploring Sao Miguel, which is where you fly into, you take the time to see the creameries in Sao George or the volcanoes on Fayal. We've always been champions of slow travel here at Suitcase. So we are pretty relieved that it feels like everyone is slowly, sorry, not sorry, adopting this way of traveling. Definitely. I think perhaps the silver lining of the pandemic is that we've learned to savour things a bit more. Small moments with friends and family, you know, all that kind of thing. And I think a big one here is that we're really going to value our time away. Being abroad, I think, is going to be feel more precious and we're going to want to come home with more than just a suntan. Even on a purely logistical level, the journey will probably be more unpleasant due to airport checks and queues and security and this kind of thing. I want to avoid this by taking fewer trips, but they'll be more thoughtfully planned. This obviously lends itself to more eco-conscious travel choices too. Yeah, definitely. And I think trips will be longer as well. That's a huge part of slow travel that we'll see. Like you said, getting through airports is going to be pretty shitty. So we're not going to want to go through them unless the destination is really, really worth it. Yeah, exactly. I know we've all been getting excited about a European summer holiday this year, but I've also been thinking about future travel. There's big trips. So many people say one day I'll go there, but I've never actually booked. Talking to friends as well as other people in the industry, it seems that this hiatus has definitely given people a thirst for a proper adventure or a bit of a kick up the bum to start planning that mega trip. You're definitely right. People have had so much more time to plan and immerse themselves in trips from home. Yeah, and it's this thoughtful, purposeful planning, which is so important. At Suitcase, as you say, Fleur, we, we always try to help people to travel smarter. And this means more sustainably, making green choices, spending locally. And this all takes a bit of planning, but it's so much more rewarding and worth it. It's really simple things like deciding to drive. Not saying anything. Good. Yeah, deciding to drive, Fleur, or take a train instead of internal flights. This is a more eco-friendly choice, but also it's a great way to really get under the skin of a destination. You're allowing more time for those serendipitous, brilliant moments that really make a trip. When you go slower, linger longer, make more careful choices, like spending locally. And where we're taking all of these things into consideration, we're going to be taking fewer trips, but they're going to be more meaningful. It's going to be your epic trips, the kind of trips that make you a pretty cool dinner guest, actually. Like sleeping under the stars in the Atacama Desert, ice climbing in Norway or Alaska or kayaking in the Amazon. What's been your favourite off-grid trip, India? Out of everyone in the editorial team, I do reckon you're up there, one of the wilder team members. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I've inadvertently become Suitcase's adventure girl. Like, actually, God, that sounds like I think I'm Lara Croft or something, doesn't it? I mean... Anyway, I've been lucky enough to go on some truly amazing trips, but there are two that really stand out as exceptional. The first is Madagascar, where I went for our Pioneer issue. This sounds like a really naff story, Flair, but I remember looking at my plastic globe as a child and seeing Madagascar floating off the coast of Africa and thinking it was just where I wanted to go more than anywhere in the world. I think I might have just liked how the word looked or something, because to be honest, I was seven and knew nothing about it. And it's got nothing to do with the fact there's an animated film series of the same name, no? Actually, you don't even watch TV, so you've definitely never seen it. Go on. Wait, what was that? Was that even out when I was seven, Fleur? I'm not still sitting on the floor of my bedroom looking at a plastic globe. But now you say it, perhaps it's a good way to start commissioning content. <laughs> well, that'd be one way to do it. Anyway, back to Madagascar. An air of mystery still seems to shroud the country. I remember telling people I was going and they pretty much all said, oh yeah, Dodo's right. I mean, maybe that says something more about my friends than anything else. But seriously, what few people seem to have clocked onto is that the country is a sort of Eden akin to the Maldives or Mauritius. There are some amazing diving sites in the north of the island, and you do get a few of those big Maldives-style honeymoon resorts up there. But the photographer Mark and I were road tripping, shut up, Flair, 
and boating down the southwest coast. And it's just kilometers and kilometers of pristine white sands and this pale aquamarine sea. Please excuse those awful travel cliches I've just used. They're banned at suitcases, phrases. Fleur, I can see you laughing at me. Stop. Anyway, the coastline is punctuated by fishing villages made up of wattle and dwarf huts, and people looked incredibly surprised to see Mark and I pitching up. I think the thing is, the, the infrastructure is really terrible, to be honest. It took us two hours to drive about you know, 25 kilometres, ragging this van thing down a roadless coast in the baking heat. I think that's maybe what, what puts people off, or why it hasn't really sort of boomed with tourism yet. Our trip was really about huts on the beach, and I mean proper huts on the beach, not those ones that sprout out over the water in Bora Bora. But that's coming. We could see the five-star development starting on the coast from the water. Madagascar is really welcoming tourism, and in 10 years it won't be so off-grid. I think you really need to go now, and I cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, I think if anyone hasn't read India's piece from this trip, it's in volume 25, um, the Pioneers issue. It's really fab. You should, yeah, you should definitely all just read it. And if you don't want to read it, then Mark's photography is also just brilliant. Mark is one of our absolute best photographers, actually. He's, um, I've all his prints in my house, floor. it's looking a bit sort of intrepid in there. But um, this actually brings me to, to my other favourite trip, um, which was a horseback journey across Jordan's Wadi Rum Desert, which I also did with Mark. It was quite, um, you know, intrepid. You ride all day and don't see a soul by nomadic Berbers and roaming cabals. The landscape looks like Mars and we traversed it for five days, just pitching a tent under the most sensational stars along the way. I think clattering down the mountainside on horseback and into Petra is a view I'll absolutely never forget. Yeah, actually, the photography from that trip is also absolutely incredible. I think if I was going to pick any of Mark's photos to have as a print in my flat, it would be the one from um, the front cover, the one that features on the front cover of the nostalgia issue. Well, none of these Lara Croft escapades match up to anything today's guest has tackled. We're talking to explorer Kiko Matthews, who makes our adventures and trips look like a Sunday stroll through Marlowe. Yeah, she's pretty cool, isn't she? Yeah, so cool. You were fangirling over Tom Brown last week, and I've got to admit, I'm fangirling over Kiko. She's accomplished some absolutely incredible things, like smashing, and I mean completely smashing, the world record for the fastest woman to row the Atlantic solo. Didn't she knock a week off the record? Yeah, a whole week. And then since then, she's run 260 kilometres across the Wadi Rum Desert and become such a fierce campaigner for keeping our oceans and beaches clean. We caught up with her to discuss her epic, world-breaking trips, tackling 50-foot waves and how Prince Harry fueled her thirst for adventure. Hi, Kiko. Thanks so much for joining us. Where are you right now? Hello. Um, hi, I am in Auckland, actually, in New Zealand. Amazing. And how are you there? Because you're not from there, are you? No, no. Um, British born and bred. I eventually found myself a boyfriend and he just happened to be a Kiwi. <laughs> I was meant to be only here for two months and then I thought, oh, I'll just stay another month because it was nice and hot in New Zealand when it's cold in the UK. Then March came and then coronavirus came and I thought, oh, maybe I'll just stay here instead of going to back to the UK which I think I probably made the right decision yeah I think you made the right decision is there anywhere you visited in New Zealand that we should have on our lists uh oh god the whole of New Zealand is pretty special there's a place called Milford Sound which is incredible fjords you can't really see them from the ocean and actually it was only discovered by a, a Welsh sailor who needed to 
protect himself from a storm and he kind of went into this little bay and it turned out to be this like massive kind of huge expanse of flat water it goes inland it was a huge great big kind of cliff faces all around and it has about nine meters of rainfall a year and we went on a day which was beautiful and sunny and crisp I saw dolphins and seals and that's down in the south island all over everywhere you go there's something like hot springs or there's amazing glaciers or where i live in taranaki there's this kind of a volcano that just sticks straight out the ground so you've got beach and volcano within kind of 20 30 kilometers yeah that sounds incredible i've just got red buses and black cows and ubers chugging up my <laughs> outside my pollution. window yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> not as pleasant <laughs> yeah so I want to jump straight into it and I want to talk about the time that you absolutely smashed a world record for the fastest female to row across the Atlantic solo. How did that challenge come about? (laughs) Yeah, a bit random, isn't it? Well, I guess my life sort of changed a little bit in 2009 when I was really ill and I was teaching uh, science at secondary school and I nearly died. I had an illness called Cushing's disease, which is super rare. Yeah, I had diabetes, insomnia, memory loss, psychosis, muscle wasting to the point I couldn't get up the stairs. I looked super funny, podgy and hairy and spotty and skin thinning and all sorts of nasty diseases. Anyway, so when I recovered from that, I decided I wanted to live my life, although I wasn't quite sure what that looked like, but I knew it wasn't in teaching. And so I was just wandering up, like, pottering around. I was in Africa. I'd done UK to Cape Town before in a vehicle, and I was doing it again, and I got to Uganda, and I was like, Oh, I think I'll just stay in Uganda because I couldn't be bothered to go all the way to Cape Town. <laughs> it's a bit of a longer story than that, but basically to cut a long story short, I ended up in Uganda. Learned to paddleboard um, on the Nile, which was awesome. I thought it looked like the most boring sport ever, but uh, I actually fancied the guy who owned the paddleboard, so I thought, <laughs> never mind. And fell in love with paddleboarding and like the connection to nature and being on the water. And it was really good for the workout. I came back to London, which is where I was kind of based. I set up a paddleboard company in Richmond and in Hackney so I was feeling pretty good about life I'd also set up a charity which hadn't really gone to plan also the truth be told (laughs) I actually was a bit bored of being single I've been single for about 12 years I was like I can't bloody get myself a boyfriend like I've got to do something really dramatic to like get someone's attention (laughs) and mum also said to me the same kind of time she's like I think Prince Harry would be a really good boyfriend I was like great what a good idea that would tick a few boxes. Um, how am I going to get his attention? I know what. I'll solo row across the Atlantic and I'll go for world record. And I'd raise money for one of his charities. And he'd obviously hear about me and he'd think, oh, what an awesome chick I was. <laughs> and he'd fall in love with me and that would be the end of that. So it was a kind of slightly random, I suppose. But I had this thought that, well, I mean, if five other women have done it, why could I not do it? And I set up this charity and I'd never set up a charity before and I'd set up a business and I'd never set up a business before and I guess life just seemed pretty good. And then halfway through my training, it, we discovered that my tumour had come back and so I know, I'm pretty sure, that the tumour was making me, one of, the, um, one of my symptoms is mania and, and psychosis. So I think it basically was just making me believe that I was way better than I really was. <laughs> So I was like, what a great idea that would be. Yes, you know, the world's wonderful and you could just do anything. So the tumour basically was, yeah, elevating my hormone levels, which were the hormone levels are making me hyperactive and like off the scale crazy in a good way. It was King's College Hospital in London. 
were awesome and they got me in and I think they thought I was a bit mad when I said I was growing the Atlantic and they needed to be a bit chop chop on the uh, the old operation because I had to, I was leaving in February and that's what I did I left in February six months after my operation so that's how that came about that is incredible I love the fact that it's partly due to <laughs> Prince Harry I think it's amazing and I think every mother has always said to their child oh Prince Harry would be perfect for you yeah, it's just exactly. the rest of us haven't rode <laughs> the, the Atlantic <laughs> I mean it clearly didn't work but you know I got the record and I raised I raised over 100 grand for the for the hospitals I think Prince Harry was the that was like a joke catalyst to get it going but what I actually thought about what I was doing and why I was doing it it's a bit more inspirational I hope but it's all about like making women and girls realize that they can do anything and particularly it was about working together and supporting each other I kind of created this woman's group a women's and girls group who funded the boat and the project and they were the kind of people that I I didn't literally phone them up but they were the kind of people I was thinking about this is the team I've got behind me this is the community who are supporting me and you know, they put their money, they all had stories about why they put their money in. So they are supporting me. Now it's like my turn to, I have to stick to my words and I have to keep going. So it was about community and working together and overcoming adversity. I think lots of people who have adversity do turn around and go, oh, God, I really need to live my life now. I mean, I couldn't thank my adversity any, like, it was amazing being ill in a weird kind of sense, because otherwise I'd just still be stuck doing something I didn't really want to do probably. So yeah, it was a good kick up the old backside. Yeah, to make the most of life. Yeah, definitely, and it's so fitted as well to like what we're all going through collectively now, isn't it? Because community's never been more important than it has, and I guess we've all seen that everyone's really come together when we're faced with something like bigger than yeah. just us and, and our our own problems. How did you prepare for for the challenge? Physically, I'd go to the gym. No running, because I hate running. So I did like biking, paddleboarding, rowing on the rowing machine, which was deadly boring, and rowing out in the boat. And we did my training in Essex. So I'd go out on the river. And it's so funny, like you think about the first time you go out and you just literally go out, out the harbour and you go around in circles. And then by the time you finished your training, you're kind of going out up and down the, the coast, like on your own, and you're anchoring up in the middle of the night. And then I lost my anchor and I had to row for 19 hours and I like, had to come into Felixstowe, which is a massive international port <laughs> on my own. It was kind of stressful, but also very adrenaline fueled and necessary that I did <laughs> what I had to do to get there because it could have been a matter of life or death or my boat being smashed up against rocks somewhere else if I didn't do it. So it was real focus. And apart from obviously losing your anchor, when you were on the challenge, were there any other hair-raising moments and moments that you thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? So within the first, I think, two, two days or two or three days, I had some pretty massive waves. I mean, I, have got, I didn't have a tape measure and I've got no real kind of concept of size of waves when you're out there. But I remember measuring like the size of a standard London house, which has got an attic. I thought that's probably about 40 foot. So I kind of thought about that and <laughs> weighed that up against the waves that were coming. I reckon it was about 50 foot, 50. It was definitely above. They were definitely above the size of like the standard London houses and your little tiny boat and they're everywhere and they're crashing and it's windy and you get to the top of one and you just think, oh, you look down, you're like, oh my God, I've got to go on the bottom and there's another one coming and another one comes. You just have to like basically hope and pray that you're not going to get your boat smashed because that is it that is basically what could happen and you just have to lock your door and put your 
put your did I put my oars away I'm not sure I didn't even have a life jacket on I didn't have time to get a life jacket because it just kind of they just these there were just three of these big three ones that just appeared out of nowhere and I was just like holy moly <laughs> but you can't be really anything about it you know you're there that's it that's what you teach yourself that you can't do anything about the fact you're dying you can't do anything about the fact that coronavirus is around or you're in lockdown you just have to let go you just have to relinquish control and when you actually learn to relinquish control in life life is awesome and that's what it was about it was like just like there's nothing you can do about it there's no point worrying you're either going to die or you're not or if you die you don't know about it and if you don't then it's a story isn't it that's kind of my outlook I guess yeah of course I kind of got this image of it being like when you like on a roller coaster and you drop down one of the big like dippers and your stomach just goes <laughs> but you're obviously a lot higher <laughs> it's not quite that bad because it's a big swell you're rowing in the same direction as the waves so you just get to the top and then the wave just kind of just sort of disappears you don't just like fly down it because you're actually rowing in the same direction that you're going with the wave you're not like rowing down the wave but you can surf the wave so look at one night going my average was 2.2 knots and I woke up one night going 14 knots like it was just that sounds like a roller coaster because the waves are like crashing either side of your boat and you're careering down this wave at full speed with absolutely no control because you're inside fast asleep (laughs) oh my gosh and there were a few like near cap sizes which were a bit hairy made your heart beat a little bit and I smashed my face on the side of the cabin one night had a wave come through my door and pour its contents of its wave onto my electrical system which then went out on the day that I was arriving into to Barbados my GPS so I sort of basically had to self-navigate and I mean it was all a bit of it was just one of those things that just happens but all, all in all it was fine I made it yeah it was it was great apart from all of those things that, that <laughs> <happened>. <laughs> yeah you don't really yeah they're just little things I yeah suppose. so you're rowing for like what 16 18 hours a day or so how did you get through that and like what COVID mechanisms oh, you have? So boring. It's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually varied between the different stages of the trip. It depends on the weather. It depends on how I was feeling because if I just had my operation not that long ago and I'd done this medication. The doctors didn't really know how it was all going to go. About two and a half weeks, two weeks or three weeks in, my body still needs to adapt to what I was going through. I wasn't producing the stress hormone. So obviously it's quite a stressful situation I was in both physically and mentally and my body's not na- producing it naturally so I'm taking it artificially no one really knew if I was taking enough so during those periods I was basically just trying to get through the day with some rowing and then towards the end I was like oh you know it's just it's just like going on to a job and I do about 18 hours not that anyone does 18 hour jobs but it didn't didn't feel like I was doing nearly as much so just like I guess you've got physical and mental physically you just get over it. You just get used to it. You just row as hard as your body will let you row comfortably. I wasn't very strict with myself. I think that was kind of, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but I've never been very strict with myself. But I think it kind of allowed me to enjoy it a bit more and then maybe that allowed me to, to be a bit happier about it and not have like mega breakdowns and therefore I was kind of on the oars enjoying myself I think maybe I say that now but <laughs> I think back did I enjoy myself I'm not sure um and I had a few podcasts so beginning the beginning the very beginning I didn't have podcasts because I was just so excited and like holding on to my dear life and getting wet all the time and then there's kind of the trip on the winds dropped and like, my brain was just like so bored so I had to have 
things to entertain myself, like the odd podcast at a certain time. And then at five o'clock, I'd have my little bag of sweeties. And then I'd have like, so just a little milestones. I read somewhere um, that you worked out you were closer to someone, you'd be closer to someone in space than you were in the middle of the Atlantic. Is, is that right? Have I said that right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think I saw six boats while I was out there. I said to Angus, oh, I wonder how far the nearest boat is from me. And uh, he said that was about 400 kilometers or 300 and something kilometers. He's like, that's basically further than the nearest astronaut, or whatever, in space, the nearest person on the, it, on the space station up there. And I was like, that is weird. Because you just think about, like, how remote are you ever from another person? You might be at home, you might not have seen anyone for a week, but you've got someone next door. You've got, like, there's always someone there. But to think that there's no other life, like human life, between you and someone in space. There's not many people that would have experienced that. It's quite a cool thought. To, it's quite a cool thought. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's incredible. Um, now, I'm not sure if this happened before your Atlantic trip or if it happened after, but I know you paddleboarded around Ibiza with your friends. Tell us a little bit about that. And are there any like really unbelievable beaches that we should visit that you discovered or anywhere that we should have on our hit list? Pretty much like everything else I do. I didn't really know what I was doing when I was out to do it. We just arrived at the airport and we looked at the little cartoon map of Ibiza where there's a parasol and we just said to the taxi man, can we go to the supermarket and then we want to go to this parasol and he dropped us off in the pitch black. And then in the morning we got up and had a little look at which way the wind was going, decided whether we'd go clockwise or anti-clockwise. I think I knew that it was 84 miles around Ibiza so we could basically do, I don't know, was it? 15 to 17 to 20 miles a day and we get around in the week to get our flight back it gives us a day if it all went wrong or the wind was rubbish but the funny the thing about Ibiza is that the rocks are kind of the same color as beach so if you're looking at google maps you can't tell the difference between a 40 foot cliff face and a nice beach always so I'd be like oh that looks like a nice long beach and actually it was just a nice long 40 foot cliff face <laughs> which if you get a like uh, onshore wind or something you basically have to paddle like hell on one side so that you don't just get you know pulled up against the rock so yeah there were moments there were a few little moments like that but that was an awesome little spot sustainability is something that's hugely important to us at suitcase and i'd love to talk to you some more about kit plastic can you tell us what it is while you started it so I finished my row and I've been all over the news and this and that. I was like, great, this is kind of what I wanted to do was to use this achievement, not only to get Prince Harry, which I failed at, but I don't think there was enough people at the, at the time doing sort of enough things to get the message out there and engage people and inspire people and also use the same concept as the community. So I chose to do plastic because it's a very easy, obvious topic that people can get involved in. So I decided I would cycle and I would cycle around the coast of the UK and each day I stop at a beach or two and I'd join in with a local community that we had pre-organised and hopefully they would get some people to come along and help. So 78 beaches, 2,000, just under 2,000 volunteers, 7,000 kilometres, let's say three and a half tonnes of waste. I can't remember. I felt like it was a real success. This is something that we talk about quite a lot at Suitcase. How do you balance your love for adventure with wanting to be green and help the planet i think like there's so many adventures on our doorstep richmond park the thames if you're in london there's the Fredonia in wales and scotland is absolutely beautiful i sent a picture to my sister who only does five star 
delicious sexy holidays and she's like oh it looks like you're in the Caribbean I was like I know and the water's quite as warm as the Caribbean but it's that beautiful but there are places definitely on your and you can always cycle to where you want to go to you don't have to go and sit and drink pina coladas for the whole of your holiday yeah definitely I really hope that where obviously this summer has been dubbed like the summer of staycations and I really hope that when people realise how beautiful like the highlands are and how beautiful the Lake District is and all these places that people are always like, oh, I can't believe I haven't been there, even though they're, they're not that far away. I hope that will start to change people's mindsets a little because they've seen it, they've experienced it then and they realise they don't have to go to to like France or Spain or wherever to see these like incredible beaches. So fingers crossed. Um, what's the next challenge on your list? Have you spent your time like during lockdown planning any adventures or any trips or anything? Um, no, I'm actually pregnant. So that's <gasps> going to be a bit of a... Congratulations! A bit, of a, a bit of a challenge and a bit of adventure. We put an offer in for business in New Zealand, which is um, like a boat charter and paddleboards and kayaks. And then we're going to add a whole lot of environmental education to it. So we're going to work with schools a lot more and businesses to actually educate people on their local environment whether it's the rivers that feed into the sea ocean where we are or whether it's on the beaches and doing beach cleans we believe that there's a lot to be done with the community and schools and education finally what would you say your best tip is for planning an adventure just say you're going to do it i think you just have to you just have to bite the bullet and go and tell everyone you're going to do it as well I think, because once you've told everyone, you've then kind of slightly got to stick to it, haven't you? Yeah, they can hold you to account, can't they? Yeah. 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 There's no going back. Thank you so much for today. It's so inspiring listening to you speak and listen to your adventures and stuff. And I mean, I definitely, I'd probably pick up a paddleboard when I'm next in Ibiza because I go every year. I've been every year for like 10 years. Yeah, nice. But I'm not sure I'll make it more than like a couple of hours. So I know we have a habit of picking the same places. Oh no, Fleur, where do you want to go now? If you remember, I did actually shotgun this ages ago and I said I wouldn't go anywhere else for the rest of the year. Here we go. Okay, so I really want my next adventure to be in Pakistan. I knew it, I knew it, Fleur. I knew you were going to say Pakistan. But anyway, go on. I'm just yeah, but I've, I've done loads of research. I've done loads of research, right? Okay. So I did loads of research during lockdown and I planned pretty much every aspect of the trip. Before the pandemic, I ate at Shola Karachi Kitchen in White City and met the chef and owner, Ada Khan. I was so blown away by her food, but also her own travels through Pakistan. I was just fascinated and it really quickly jumped to the top of my list. Ideally, I'd like to go in September, but who knows whether I'll be allowed or not. Do you mean by me? No, I don't even mean by you. I mean by the travel restrictions. <laughs> but yeah. I see, I see. Okay, go. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's that too, but I'm just presuming I can go, okay? <laughs> so the best time to visit is between May and October, as that's when there's no snow. So most of the roads are open by then. And then that way it's possible to reach all the beautiful lakes and valleys and peaks. I probably want to spend a few weeks there. That I have to ask you for, actually. Uh, but no, I do, I do want to spend a few weeks there. I want to tick off Lahore and Islamabad, of course. But I also want to venture to the Gilgit Valley up in the north. That's where the three main mountain ranges are. So you've got the Himalayas, obviously, Hindu Crush and Karakaram. I also want to trek the Rakaposhi Mountains. I want to trek up to the base camp. The trail is just laden with glaciers and you can only cross during the warmer months. 
Yeah, I really love how you've told me this in great detail. Like I don't know any of it already. It just sounds amazing. That's why I want to go to. But this is what I really meant though. These big trip, proper journeys where sometimes you're probably a bit cold or a bit hot or a bit wet or a bit out of breath. And perhaps some sort of physical effort goes into sort of reaching an end point. This stuff is me all over and exactly the kind of things I think people are going to want to do, you know, post lockdown. I've been obsessed with Mongolia for several years now. I really want to do a trip across all the stands, perhaps coinciding with the nomadic games and ending in Mongolia. But I think much like you were saying, you know, I'd have to take a mini sabbatical or something to make that work. So I'd happily just take Mongolia at the moment. But you've got these endless plains dotted with yurts. Uh, you've got monasteries, you've got the Gobi Desert, and they're really big into their horses there. They're beautiful. So I'd love to do a similar trip like I did in Jordan. Another thing that I think is just looks so cool is they have these amazing festivals and they sort of involve eagle racing and wrestling and archery and traditional dance. And I just think that would be amazing. Can you imagine the photography on a trip like that? Just, just epic. And finally, they, you can do skiing in the Altai Mountains. How cool would it be to be like, yeah, skiing in Mongolia? How was France? <laughs> yeah that's so cool I tell you what's cooler though imagine if we wrestled for what kind of trip we go on so imagine we had to wrestle to see if you get to go to Pakistan or I get to go or if I get to go to Mongolia or if you get to go and then what happens if I win both and then you don't get to go to that yeah I'll just I'll just stay at home just manning the fort will I just <laughs> yeah, just man in the tour calendar. No, as we talk about epic trips, I just thought I'd, you know, I'll just pitch another trip to you while I've got you. Um, so That's I really want to. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um, so I really want to go on safari, but not the sit in a jeep all day and be handed G and T's kind. I don't want everything to be done for me. I feel then that there can be a kind of disconnect with those trips. So, You're absolutely right, Flair. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so instead I've had Namibia on my radar for an age. It's less about t- ticking off the big five and more about experiencing so many different diverse landscapes in one trip. You take yourself on a self-drive safari across all these insane landscapes. And if you see an elephant trotting off in the distance, then great, like, cool. But it's not the sole purpose of the trip here the adventurous part really comes from the journey and it's less about your game drive field itinerary fun fact actually for you india it rivals mongolia for emptiness as it's so sparsely populated Flirt, what is going on here you're now trying to make me want to go to namibia as well or just boasting about this another amazing trip you're trying to pinch off me no i'm not pinching it because i'm pitching it anyway uh... <laughs> <laughs> But, but no, I have a thing about deserts and I've made quite a few trips, um, road trips because I can drive. Uh, so I've made quite a few road trips across Joshua Tree in California and the Moroccan Sahara too. There's just something about how vast and arid it is that I feel like I really connect with. Anyways, that's why I'm so drawn to Nimavir's Skeleton Coast with its dried riverbeds and ancient rock formations. It's had a bit of a moment too, actually, quite recently, because there's been lots of forward-thinking lodges that have opened. One of them is Shit Rogue Lodge, which is architecturally just a, a masterpiece. Is it a ship or is it a bunker? Who knows? Yeah, you're just surrounded, as far as I can see, by sand and these angular wooden cabins that just appear on the landscape. It's the only lodge of its kind on the northern shores, so you're likely to be served by only an antelope and maybe an elephant if you're lucky. Hunkering down in your cabin, hiding from a sandstorm is highly likely. Maybe I'll split my time between Shipwreck Lodge and Amanda. Amanda is more akin to your typical lodge, but also still completely mind-blowing. 
It's actually part of the Zanier Hotel Group who also have properties in Ghent and Cambodia. Another fun fact for your quizzes, India. Um, Hotelier Arnaud Zenia actually saved a bit of land after being tipped off by Angelina Jolie. She introduced him to conservationists Rudy and Marlies Van Buren, who run the sanctuary next door. It means that guests of the lodge can get access to the projects that they run there, so they can look after injured wild cats or volunteer with some of the other conservation. The lodge's savannah setting in itself is unrivaled, and you can literally watch rhinos from your soaking tub and you all know how much we love a good bathtub. But you're absolutely right. I think authenticity is a bit of a blah, sort of buzzword here. And, but you said something about sort of disconnect that can happen with some safaris where you are just sitting in a Jeep, gawping at lions, and it's a bit of a disnified experience. I think those community projects and wildlife projects, as well as the fact that it's a self-drive safari in parts, that is much more rewarding than sort of the disnified lion gawping Jeep experience, which a lot of safaris can, can end up being, I think. Yeah, exactly. So now I've planned two insanely epic trips to the future, despite minutes ago only claiming that I'd gone one. I will try harder not to fall for the same destinations as you next time. I mean, Fleur, at least we have the same taste in men, right? Right. We might have stopped travelling physically, but we're planning and dreaming more than ever. We caught up with some of the Upgrades listeners to find out where they're planning to travel post-pandemic. After lockdown, I would like to go back to Sicily. I remember going there as a child and absolutely loving it. I like to hire a car and just drive on the island, stopping at places, walking, seeing everything and just eating all the food. Hey, Fleur and India. After your staycation recommendations, I'm so keen to stay at the meet, especially since I've heard that their wine selection is amazing. I'll also try and sneak in a trip to Mykonos as well. This is Valerio and I had some plans with my friends in March in the US to get our skydiving license and that obviously was cancelled due to the pandemic so as soon as this is over we hope to go back, I hope to go back to the US and, and do the plan we had and hopefully once the borders in Colombia open in September I hope to go there and also see my family. We'd love to hear from you about where you're traveling next. You can send us a voice note on any plans you have or how you think the travel landscape might change to fleur at suitcasemag.com. We'll link all our recommendations from today's episode into the show notes alongside links to our articles that will help you go off grid. Special thanks to Kiko Matthews for joining us, sharing her incredible travel tales and discussing ways in which we can protect our oceans. I'm going to practice paddleboarding for my next IB for pilgrimage too. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast listening platform you use. The Upgrade from Suitcase Magazine will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, check in with us at suitcasemag.com. 